You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. And we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com. That's letstalktorah at gmail.com. Or you could even call us live at 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. The weather is unbelievable. I just checked. It is 90 warm degrees outside, which is a beautiful thing. Because in the winter, we talk about how cold it is. So I like the warm weather. I don't know if I want to sit out and schwitz in the hot sun. But getting out in the warm weather is really, really amazing. Um, I've been speaking to some friends, some older people who have basically locked themselves in their house. And I said, you know, maybe you should open the window. Maybe you should walk outside in the backyard. Get some fresh air. Now is a great time. It's hot, but it's beautiful. It's great swimming weather. If you have a swimming pool in your backyard, it is amazing with the economy. Um, We always have one of these backyard pools, and so you have these filters. Well, the filters have, like, quadrupled in price. So these little filters that you could get, you know, last year for $3 a filter, it's like $15 a filter. But that's okay because that means lots of people are enjoying the water, swimming hopefully safely, carefully. We're talking about hot. So hot, by the way, is a good lead-in to this week's Torah portion where as hot as you think it might be, uh, the red cow is going to have it much, much hotter. Is a famous famous Torah portion because of this most unusual, most difficult to understand command in the Torah. When we're finished, we still are not going to understand it, but at least we'll have an idea of, of what we don't understand, and does it matter if we don't understand? Okay, so the Torah clearly says that some commandments are very easy to understand. You have to honor your parents. Of course you have to honor your parents. They take care of you. They raised you. They brought you into this world. Uh, Mind you, I have my own, I guess, pet peeve when I watch children refer to their parents by their first name. Such a concept I can never understand. I, with my nice gray beard, still have difficulty calling my parents' friends by their first name. They're my parents' friends. They're older than I am. How do you call such a person by a first name? That's a lack of respect. But I see people all the time now that when they're referring to their parent, they say the parent's first name. And I have to think for a second, oh, they mean their father. Oh, they mean their mother. But overall, um, overall, I think most of us can understand that honoring your parents is a very, makes sense, simple command without getting to the details, the difference of the child. I would say, I wouldn't say it. We understand we shouldn't steal. We understand you can't murder. There's a lot of very simple commands that anybody can understand. Those are just regular, well, they're not regular, but everything's just a regular mitzvah, command. Then we have something called a chok. A chok is a law that I don't understand. 
And try as I may, I'm not going to come to a conclusion anyways. Um, many of the sacrifices could be very difficult to understand why. The idea of, of not wearing wool and linen together called chatness is hard to understand. Um, but this week, this week takes the cake. This is the parasha of, I think they call it the Red Heifer, the Paraduma, the Red Cow. And from top to bottom, we have a lot of difficulties in understanding it. Um, it says the great King Solomon, the wisest man ever, and he felt that he understood the reasoning behind every single command. When he finished working through the red cow, the paraduma, he said, I don't get it. And you know what? If I don't understand this one, I probably don't understand any of them. So my son came home this week and he said something, I think one of his teachers said, which was fascinating. He had gone over to one of, he's in high school, he went over to one of his teachers and he asked him a Talmudic question. A very good question. And the rabbi explained, they gave him an answer. He did like the answer, he didn't like the answer. And then the rabbi said a fascinating question to him. He said, how did you feel when you asked the question? And I told you it was a good question. He said, I felt great. I felt great. He says, that's what Torah study and the Jewish people, when they deal with the Torah, that's how it's supposed to be. We do not always have to have an answer. We're allowed to ask questions. My rabbi's not alive anymore, but uh, where I studied what you would call post-high school, and even uh, after I was married, he didn't really care if you had a good answer. But he loved when you had a good question. He said, a good question shows clarity. We do not melt and fold up our tents because somebody asks a good question. We think about it. We, we delve into it. We talk about it. And if at the end of the day we don't have an answer, we're still okay. Because the good question focuses us in the right direction. And many times it gets us towards the answer. But the Torah is never afraid of a good question. There are many people out there. Sometimes it could be fathers. Sometimes it could be teachers. You want to get a teacher really nervous? Most teachers. Not me. But most teachers, you want to get them really nervous? Ask them a question that they can't answer. Not some silly philosophical question. But something that you're learning about, something that you're discussing, if you ask the teacher questions they can't answer, it is amazing how, how nervous they get. They get nervous. They start getting strict. They want to have that punishment. They might start yelling at you because they think that if they don't have an answer, then everything they said is like a pile of cards and it all collapses. The Torah knows the Torah is not collapsing because you have a good question. You have a good question. You're not equipped to answer it. God has the answer. And that's really... I don't say every teacher should answer all day long, God has the answer. If, if all day long a teacher said God knows the answer, you're not a very good teacher. That's for sure. I told you this story numerous times. Um, I was helping somebody um, prepare to become a teacher, to, to give him out a lesson. And as I was preparing him, I saw he did not have a good grasp on the information. I said, you don't know the material well. You cannot walk into a classroom for two reasons. First of all, you're going to be nervous. Teachers that are not clear on the information are very nervous. They cannot teach. Second of all, it's not fair. The child will ask you a question. You're going to get nervous. 
if you would have a better feeling for the material, if you studied it harder, then you'd know this one asked that question, that one asked the question. I do it in class. I say, very good question. This one asks it. But when I know the question and when I know the answer, I could tell a third grader, look, I could give you an answer, but but you're not going to understand it and we're wasting our time. But just know it's a good question and they're satisfied. Now, I don't make this up. Right? I don't, that's not my go-to answer. That's silly and it's not, it's not honest. And many times I'll tell them, look, the answer is too hard for you, but I want you to know I know the answer. And I'll take a minute or so to go over the basics of what the answer would be. And then I'll say, do you know what I'm talking about? And the boy will say, no, I have no idea. I said, see, your question is fantastic. You're just not ready yet for the full answer. As you get older, this question will come up over and over and you'll have the right answer. The bottom line is, again, there's nothing wrong with a good question. As a matter of fact, it's better there should be good questions. Because if the Torah was a book that I understood everything it said, if I understood everything that God said, I don't need that kind of God. I don't need a God that I'm, I'm on, on God's level. That I, Yeah, I get that. I get, oh, this makes sense to me. I get all this. I understand. If that's what my God is, you know, that's, that's nothing. I need a God that is so far and above anything I could ever fathom. Okay, what he lets me understand, good. What I'm not equipped to answer is also good. It doesn't matter. That's all fine. So the paradum is something that is beyond comprehension. So let's try to just touch on a few points, and, uh, and we'll, we'll move along, see what we can learn from it. Okay, first of all, you need to know there is a concept called tahar and tame. Tahar means pure. Tame means impure. For example, when a person dies, the body, which is now separated from the soul, is impure. What does that mean? So first of all, it means if I touch that dead body, or even if I'm in the same room with that dead body, I can no longer walk into the temple. I can no longer eat uh, sacrifice meat. Um, if, uh, if I'm a Kohen, I cannot eat what's called the truma, the tithes. So somehow this dead body has some force. There's no way to explain exactly what it is. If I touch it, I, I now become what's called tame. I am now impure. And, uh, and there are certain restrictions I now have. And by the way, um, in way back when, the times of the Talmud and the times of the Mishnah and before, um, they tried very hard to never become impure because the Torah study would suffer from it. It says, uh, it says by King Saul, he, King David didn't show up one day. He wasn't King David yet. But King David hadn't shown up. King Saul said he didn't ask the first day where he was. He figured he's not pure. If he's impure, he knows by my table, everyone has to be pure. So he probably is, is taking a day to patch things up, and he'll be here tomorrow. He was there the next day, then he realized that he was disappearing on him. So how do you get rid of this impurity? So you have to get this red cow. It has to be perfectly red. Can't even have two black hairs. It was never worked. Um, then there's a whole process. We're going to take this cow, and the Cohen will take it to to what's called Har Mishcha or Mount, Z- or, or Mount Olives, and he's going to slaughter it, and he's going to burn it on a, on, a, on a bonfire. It's going to be like in a pit. And then when the stomach explodes from the heat, then I told you it's going to be hot for that cow. Then we're going to take a, a, a cedar branch and, a, and, a, and some grass called hyssop grass or azov in Hebrew. We're going to tie it up with a red string. We're going to throw it in. Then those ashes will be collected, 
And then those ashes will have to be put into water that came from a spring. And anybody involved in the process we want um, should all be pure. And then we're going to get those ashes in the water. They take that water. On the, after the person becomes impure, on, he's going to start counting process. On day three and day seven, he's going to be spritzed with that water-ash combination. Then he'll go into a pool of water called the mikvah. Now he's tar. Why should this work? I mean, like, there's nothing for us to even start describing and discussing why it should work. It's, it's beyond comprehension. Second of all, there's another rule that anybody involved in the process, if I'm trying to make you pure, you're pure. If I'm already pure, I'm going to have a low-level impurity that I'm going to have to get rid of. That also becomes a problem. So I don't want to get into all the details, the nitty-gritty details. There's tractates about it. I happen to be signing the tractate with my son right now. As I told you, my son wasn't able to go back to Israel because of corona. So finally, um, his school in Israel set up a satellite on the East Coast. They set up a few of them. So he's there, very happy. But for the extra six or seven weeks he was home, um, I actually started studying with him. It was fantastic. We had such a good time. We sat for about an hour every day. Um, so one of the tractates we were studying was this tractate about the Paraduma, the red cow. We're halfway through. I could finish it myself. Don't worry. Um, but instead, I skipped to a new tractate for myself. And I told my son, I'm waiting for you to come back. When you come back for your summer vacation, we'll go ahead and enjoy continuing that tractate. In any case... Um, there's a, a few at least side points that are worth discussing. Um, one is that it's um, very interesting, this purity and impurity, um, when it says that when we received the Torah, so we became like super pure. And interesting enough, death, according to his name is the Kliyaka, whether the Talmud seems to say we weren't going to die at all, after the Torah was given. The Kliyaka learns a little different. He says, we would have died, but our death would not create an impurity. Then we sin by, with a golden calf, and now when now we could die. Now when we die, there's an impurity. There's another case, another place really in the Torah where this idea comes up, and that's by Jacob. It says when Jacob dies, it doesn't use all the words of dying. It says, he used the word Vayigva, he died quickly. Um, I think it's missing the word Vayamas. There's three words that are usually used, and it's missing one of the words. I think it doesn't say the actual word of death, which is mace. So, so, um, so, all the, so Rashi says, but all the commentaries discuss it, it says Jacob didn't die. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, Jacob didn't die. Of course Jacob died. They embalmed him. They buried him. What, they buried him alive? They embalmed him alive? That's ridiculous. But Rashi, the greatest commentary, says that Jacob did not die. What does that mean? So obviously we're missing something in when we talk about dying. There's different parts of dying. Um, and so let's take it a step back. And that is that a person is made up of two parts. He's made up of a physical body. And he's made up of a spiritual soul. One without the other can't do anything. The body does not live without a soul. When the soul departs the body, the body is dead. End of story. You want to say it's still a heartbeat, whatever, it doesn't matter. When the soul 
the parts, the physical body, the body is now dead. We see that because the heartbeat, no brain function, whatever it is. Now, the, the soul cannot do commandments, cannot do good deeds without the body. It needs the body to go ahead and keep the Sabbath, uh, make a blessing on food, study Torah, do this paraduma thing. Any any good deed, or by the way, any bad deed, so the soul can't get the nourishment. The soul gets its nourishment from good deeds. It can't get that nourishment without a body. So there's a combination. We need both. There's a parable. Um, the soul comes up to heaven and God says, okay, you did this and this sin. It wasn't me. It was that body you left there on the floor there, dead. So God says, I don't know if God says it, but to tell you a parable. Um, there were two guards. The king had two guards. Um, one of them, they were watching, I guess, one of the apple orchards. One of them was blind. And one of them was lame. Pretty funny group uh, of guards, but uh, together they could work, right? The guy who sees could tell the, the guy who's lame to, to um, I have to have it backwards. One guy is blind, right? And the other guy is lame, right? So, but if they work together, right? If the blind guy will sit on the, I'm sorry, if the lame guy who can see will sit on the shoulders of the blind guy, they can work together. Well, one day they said, you know, why are we just sitting here? Look at those delicious apples. Let's go take a couple. They went. So the, the lame guy went on the shoulders of the blind guy, and the blind guy walked as he was instructed, and they shared the apples and went back. Okay, the king found out, brings him into court. And says, you stole my apples. The blind guy says, come on, I can't see. How can I steal your apples? The lame guy says, I can't walk. Of course I didn't steal your apples. So the king goes, he puts the, he's not stupid, right? He puts the lame guy on top of the blind guy, and he says, you worked together, and you worked it out. So too, when the soul will come up to heaven and try to say, it wasn't me, God says, no, it wasn't you by yourself. It was your combination, body and soul. Okay, now that we've explained this combination, body and soul, so here's really what the answer is. When the soul departs the body, it usually does not leave with what you would call a clean break. It's not a complete separation. There's a little bit of soul left in the body. Almost like if you walk by bushes sometimes, or you walk by a thorn bush, and your clothing gets pulled by the, it gets caught in the thorns, so some of the clothing, some of those strands get stuck in the bush. That's what happens now when a person dies. The soul does not completely separate. So if you're Jacob, and there's a complete separation, like taking off your shirt, so there's a complete separation. Then, um, then the body is not tummy. It's not impure because the soul is completely gone. The impurity is caused. I can't tell you what it is, but I'm telling you what it, what causes it. The impurity is caused when the soul remains in the body. Are there people where it completely separates? Probably not too many. In history, they talk about a couple in history. So there's not too many. But again, that goes back to what the Kliyaka was saying. When we received the Torah, we were so pure that our souls would have left our body clean. You do the first big sin with a golden calf, and it's not going to be so clean no more. Now, there won't be a clean break. So impurity came back. Once impurity came back, God gave a way for the guy who touches 
the impure body. You can't make that impure body pure. Sprinkling ashes and water over an, a dead body will do nothing. But for the person who touched it, it will take away with the process the impurity and make the person pure again. Okay. Um, the next part of the Torah point is so much happening in these Torah points. It's a good thing I got two segments because it's a double portion this week. The first portion is called Chukas, from the word Chok, Law. The second portion is called Balak, it's somebody's name. So I got two segments today, so I will have time to do to touch on both Torah portions. But I'm telling you, I'm barely touching it. But let's continue. We Such a fun topic, death. Um, so Miriam dies. The sister of Moses, the threesome of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam passed away in this week's Torah portion. When she passes away, the water supply, the rock that supplied all the water for the entire Jewish nation, disappears. No more water. When you're in a desert and your water supply just dried up, that's not good. People complain. Um... You're probably familiar. Hopefully you're familiar. God tells Moses, talk to the rock. Instead of talking to the rock, Moses ends up hitting the rock. The water comes out, but God says, if you would have talked to the rock, there would have been a fantastic lesson for the world. Instead, um, the world missed out on the lesson. What would the lesson be? The lesson was that a rock that doesn't get punished or rewarded for listening, listen to your words, the Jewish people that are rewarded and punished for listening to your words, Moses, for sure they would know to listen. Now you hit it with a stick, you lose the message. I don't want to get into it. I just wanted to make sure we had that part of the story. Because of that, Moses will no longer go into the land of Israel. So, you know, there's an interesting question I think people ask, and what, what they do ask and what they should ask. And this almost is a follow-up uh, from our amazing guest last week, uh, Rebecca Steyer. I hope you bought her book. We always ask, why did this person die? Oh, what happened? Was he or she sick? Was it an accident? What was the cause? Why did the person die? So I saw somebody ask the question this week, which is really, really amazing. The question is not supposed to be, why did the person die? The question should really be, why was this person born? And really, we should ask it on ourselves. Why was I born? What is my purpose in this world? And I will hopefully live a good life, and hopefully I'll live a life full of Torah study and good deeds and helping people and, and raising a good family and, and, and teaching my children and helping my children or my students, whatever, whatever the good is, whatever my purpose is. Now, if a person's lived a full life and a purposeful life, so then when the person dies, it's not why did the person die. It's, wow, that person lived a great life. That person accomplished in his life. That, in other words, we, take, we have the wrong focus. If our focus is why is the person going to die, so I'm just worried about dying. If my focus is why am I living, well, if my question is why am I living, then I'll do the right thing, hopefully most of the time. Um, it is interesting. We definitely don't have time to get into it. Maybe another time. But think about it for a second. Um, Miriam, the, the verse, the Torah says, Miriam and Moses died the same death. They died a death called Neshika. 
The death of Nishika means the soul is completely removed from the body, which is what we've been talking about the whole time, this idea of the soul being completely removed. So both Miriam and Moses had the same death, and, and Aaron, by the way, right? We're no playing favorites here. Everybody had the same one. This perfect death for these perfect people. So that so the focus has to be, you have to recognize, you know, Moses, a scholar doing Torah study, it is true men have more commandments than women. Women do not have the command to study. But you see that each one had the ability to have the perfect death. Or they could live their life to its fullest, doing everything they were supposed to do to live and serve God properly, even though they each had to serve God differently. Men have their way of serving God. Women have their way of serving God. When people think that men and women are supposed to do everything the same, right, they're not understanding what God wants. I have a way I want men to, to serve me. I have a way I want women to serve me. And if each one does their job properly, they will serve God the way they're supposed to. If they're each on their own and each one's doing what they think is right without following the rules and regulations, then we have problems. And I'm not sure my music is not playing. Anybody back there? I guess not. Anyways, I'm going to keep going because I don't know what happened to my team back there. They're letting me talk longer. So I am going to end with a story, even though I wanted to talk about feminism a little bit, but no time to get into that. Too boring. Anyways, here's just a good ending story to see what my guys are doing back there. So there was a professor who gave a test. Professor gives a test, and he says very clearly, he tells everybody who's giving the test to, he says, when the clock strikes one o'clock, oh, now my music is playing. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to save this story for my next segment uh, because I don't know why we got delayed. But my music is playing. I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. You know, I can't do it without my wonderful sponsors and listeners, and I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team. We have Dave and Angel in the back, and I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi C. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast, and until next time, don't forget to think about it.